master no. recording. As a, as a master recording, listen to it in the future. All right, uh, I've got a good friend of mine, uh, Sophie, uh, who uh, is I'm actually actually going to let her introduce herself. Sophie, go ahead. Hi, my name is Sophie, as I said. Um, so I'm a post-CCT um, emergency medicine doctor who's currently working in pre-hospital care field. Um, I previously worked for London's Air Ambulance Physician Response Unit and with them as a HEMS registrar, and I'm currently with um, Air Ambulance Cancer in Sussex. That's great, Sophie. Um, so uh, I wanted to ask you, actually, how did you get in the field of uh, pre-hospital emergency medicine? Um, probably all goes back to my first um, A&E job as an F2. Um, we had some consultants there who were basic doctors who had also certainly had either worked or were going to work for London HEMS. Um, but at the time, obviously, I was pretty junior and um, I just thought they were sort of these quite special guys and girls who jumped out of helicopters in bright orange jumpsuits um, and that I was never going to be good enough for that. But actually, fast forward a few years, um, and when I did my CT3 year at St George's, again, there were quite a few of the consultants and registrars that, again, had either done HEMS jobs locally or further afield or were moving on to do those jobs. And I think during that time, I began to realise that actually they had all started out very similar to me um, as kind of sort of junior emergency medicine doctors and had just worked quite hard um, to get to where they wanted to be. And that sort of suddenly made me realise that it wasn't actually as impossible as I thought it had been or I thought it was going to be. And um, yeah, it kind of got my interest started and then sort of support from consultants and registrars there and also with local services, the area. So to me, it was London and Cancer in Sussex. They had open governance days and Cancer in Sussex in particular did a lot of um, training days for kind of junior doctors and other people who might want to get involved in pre-hospital um, emergency medicine. So um, went along to lots of those days, got lots of experience, got my face um, known and then sort of a few years later started to apply for jobs and yeah, had to had to apply a few times, but um, finally was quite successful. Um, my first job was with the London Air Ambulance Physician Response Unit, which was more medical, um, pre-hospital care and anything from minor injuries and illnesses all the way through to critical care and trauma. And then um, a year or two later, I did my first London HEMS job. And then obviously now I'm with cancer in Sussex. So obviously you did um, uh, your first, uh, you said, uh, pre-hospital emergency job as when you were actually a, a registrar in emergency medicine, weren't you? So I want to know your feeling about the first time that you actually wore the outfit that you, the, the jumpsuit that you mentioned, the red jumpsuit, and you actually did your first pre-hospital job. Um, so with the physician response unit, we when I started, they'd actually stopped wearing the jumpsuits and had their own uniform. Oh, um, but... <laughs> but um, but it was still, so nonetheless, it was um, quite, yeah, quite a nice uniform, nice bright red t-shirt and black trousers, um, a bit different to scrubs that I've worn for the last, gosh knows how many years. Um, and it was still, it was still quite daunting, although I knew that the chances of going to sort of a high-end critical care trauma job were lower, um, it was still sort of, I was working in an environment out of my comfort zone. I didn't have every little thing 
that I'd normally have available to me in the hospital. I didn't sort of automatically have an anaesthetist if I needed them or ITU. I didn't have an x-ray. I didn't have every blood test that I wanted. Um, so it was still it was still quite daunting, but also really exciting. It was a it was really interesting to sort of um, to do a different type of medicine and to really have to concentrate on your history and your examination skills and sort of make decisions as to really are those examination are those sorry investigations necessary do I need to do those blood tests do they really need to go into hospital what's that going to add so it was it was really good fun yeah I'm sure it was all right that's interesting to know about uh, the the PRU job but uh, I'm more interested to know about um, why did you actually do uh, or you are doing HEMS job and how do you feel about the whole thing um, so I think my main interest in um, doing a HEMS job was that I kind of felt it was the the one way that I could get uh, the real experience of sort of the high-end kind of um, critical care stuff and I wanted like eventually I knew I wanted to work in a major trauma centre sort of finally as a consultant and for me I wanted to be prepared for anything that came through that door and I think it is it is difficult I'm not saying you have to do a HEMS job but I think for me personally it was difficult to get that experience even having spent sort of three or four years at MTCs as part of my training so for me being actually out there getting the experience of the RSIs the thoracostomies thoracotomies all the other sort of high-end stuff that you get to do on a fairly regular basis as part of a HEMS job. For me, that was quite important to get that experience. Um, and I guess the first time, yeah, the first time sort of putting that orange jumpsuit on and sort of being in the aircraft and knowing that after all these years, I was finally doing the job that I'd actually worked pretty hard for probably the best part of five years to do. It felt it felt quite surreal um, and pretty daunting, I will admit. Um, and, but ironically, my first couple of shifts were incredibly quiet and I didn't do very much, but, um, certainly quite quickly got into the swing of things and yeah, I got some big jobs under my belt, but it was definitely, it was definitely worth it, but yeah, hard work and quite daunting to start with. Oh, that's amazing, Sophie. So, uh, you mentioned, um, the critical care interventions and stuff and the big jobs that, um, you had to undertake. How do you stay up to date with all those critical care skills, your RSIs, your pre-hospital anesthesia, your thoracotomies? How do you make sure you're all always ready to do them? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a really important question. And there are skills that are really important, but we're not necessarily doing them every shift or sometimes not even every week, every month. So it's really important that we maintain those skills. And um, there's lots of ways of doing it. Um, so we do a lot of training, um, a lot of simulation. So kind of it's making the most of that downtime between jobs when it's sort of a quiet period. Um, we all try and take the opportunity to go and do um, some simulation and some training as, as part of the crew. And often if there are the consultants or the governance leads around, they'll come and sort of supervise us. Um, but also kind of what's coming into a, to a number of pre-hospital services are sort of these competency passports. So um, there'll be a list kind of the skills that are important um, for us to make sure that we maintain that we might not be doing on a particularly regular basis. And it's up to us to ensure that we are doing those within at least sort of either in 
kind of on a real patient or in a simulation or at least talking through those um, skills on a semi-regular basis. So each um, specific skill will have a time frame in which we are expected to have at least either done it and debriefed the job or sort of simulated it or talked through it with one of the consultants. Um, but it's, I think it's probably, it's a, quite a personal thing to ensure that you can maintain those skills. Certainly for me, it's quite important and I will always ensure that I'm happy um, with the things that I have to do. Um, but I think it's really, it's really important that, that on a personal level that you make sure that you keep those skills up to date because there's no point sort of getting a job and you realising you have forgotten how to do something. It's not really oh, yeah. the time to be thinking through. It's all about that kind of, we talk about it a lot, but that muscle memory and it's that practice, yes. practice, practice, and it becomes second nature eventually. That's, that's true. And obviously, the, it is, as, as you rightly mentioned, it's, it totally depends on the person. How many, like, I don't know, common things of common things you need to do to be able to fully, uh, your, your muscle memory allows you to do it. Uh, regulated. I don't know. Some some people might need three RSIs in in a month to be able to do it for the fourth time happily. But some people might be just happy to do them um, after after doing only four in a year. I don't know. People yeah. are different, aren't they? Exactly. It's it's yeah. completely dependent on you as a person, and probably partly sort of the specialty that you come from, and also if say some of our doctors do kind of part-time HEMS things with another job. So either their intensive care, anaesthetics, emergency medicine. And so they will get sort of different skills within their own department. So for one person, actually their slight sort of weakness will be one thing, whereas someone else's weakness will be another. So it's a very, it's a very kind of personal thing. And I think that's where you have to take a lot of responsibility on yourself to make sure that you are sort of that you're, your gate your kind of game is at the right level really that's great and then when you've got all those simulation and moulage and days like that this these are those are the days that you can you can actually find out the areas that you need to improve and you improve on them yeah exactly that's where yeah. you find where you find you a bit weak and that's and then you know what you've got to go and work on absolutely okay so you've shared with us how you keep your skills up to date and we've spoken about your feelings uh, when you did uh, and the reasons that you've done um, hems or you're doing hems all right now I'm interested to know what does make a good hems doctor I think I think one of the really important things to stress is that actually doing the basics well are really important um, I think people think that hems doctors sometimes are sort of they know everything and they're really exceptional at everything but but I don't think they are I think they're just very good at doing the basics well so sort of getting getting a good history, like if you can get the history yourself, um, really picture in your head sort of what you think happens, because that will then give you the idea of sort of the potential injuries that the patient might have. Um, and then just doing a really, really good primary survey, sort of getting down, getting your hands on the chest properly, really sort of working out where's that pain uh, is there equilibrium entry? Is there some crepitus? Is that pelvis stable? What long bones are fractured? Because again, that's really like those two together are going to give you at least 90% of what you think is wrong with the patient. And and without trying to sound cocky or anything, there's it sort of with knowing your anatomy pretty well and with a good history and examination, a lot of the time, the exam the injuries that I think a patient has are the injuries that are then found later on the CT. 
And then once you've once you've got into your head what you think's wrong and sort of you can work out how sick the patient is and kind of then you can go through your plan really well and it's sort of coming up with a with a good simple plan and just executing it really well and getting everyone on board so you've got to have some really good communication skills you're working there's you and a paramedic who you should know and so you've got ambulance crews that you met before packaging your patient cannulating getting obs moving the patient so it's really important to that you can communicate well but also get everyone to buy into what you want to happen there's nothing worse than sort of you having a plan but actually either not communicating it to everyone or annoying the sort of ambulance crew so that they don't really want to help you at all and I think they're the they're the kind of important things and then talk to the patient that you've still got a patient in front of you that may or may not be alert or may not be able to talk to you reassure them as well especially if they're alert because they're probably having the worst day of their life right now and all they've seen is a helicopter arrive and these people sort of jump out to come and look after them and most people say to me when they saw the helicopter they knew it must be bad so I think it's important to talk to your patients as well and to reassure them don't forget that they're there as well. That's absolutely true isn't it like unfortunately in many of the places people have gone um, oh just a quick primary survey we can do the CT quickly now and I think it can kind of it kind of uh, proves a point that actually as a HEMS doctor because you don't have access to all that modalities and everything that you want it just makes you that you need you need to be always ready for proper examination better communication and and obviously uh, as you mentioned uh, not just with with your team with the with a patient if the patient is awake it just shows the fact that um, sometimes in the trauma centers we don't do all these things very well I think because we're just easy okay quickly let's just scan the patient do you agree I do I really do I think I think there's sort of different time pressures and obviously tarn targets and things like that within hospitals and I can see why it's become a little bit of a conveyor belt of right get get the obs on get the blood someone does a cursory primary survey we're going to put them through the scanner and don't get me wrong that's what I was doing for sort of the three or four years I spent in a in a in MT, various MTCs but what I really really enjoy is actually like really getting to grips with what I think is wrong with that patient and trying to work out the injuries and then when you go back and you get your CT results sort of a few hours later it's so satisfying that you yeah. diagnosed that you thought they had subarachnoid blood over subdural or you thought they had a subdural and and that's what they have on their CT or you thought they had had a liver lack or you thought they had this you thought they had that and that's what they have on the CT and it really does it just gets you really sort of thinking about your anatomy thinking about your physiology thinking about your mechanism of injury and how that correlates with what you've found on the patient but it's so satisfying really is that is so satisfying because it makes you be a doctor yeah it's doing what we were trained to do for all those years at medical school and then suddenly we put that all aside because we have x-rays and cts and bloods and this so that actually we don't i think people forget how important the history and examination is and how and, and we should really be using that for even in the emergency department to think do we really need that investigation if it doesn't bother you i want you to talk about a very interesting case that you probably would remember forever um i think probably my first patient that was kind of talking g15 that then died on me that's probably the one that i will always 
remember. So it was a, a lady who had jumped off kind of the, the sort of an overway of a, a motorway or an A road. And oh. so a pretty significant jump, taller than a normal sort of standard two-story house. And we got there and she was on a trolley kind of being packaged by the ambulance crew. Obviously pretty short of breath, but was talking, would follow commands. She knew where she was. She knew her name and stuff. We'd kind of planned to put her off to sleep. Thought she had a nasty, nasty chest injury. And we were going to RSI her, thoracostomies and take her to take her to the local MTC. But actually before, as we were setting up for the RSI, she, well, she became unresponsive and dropped her blood pressure, dropped her, dropped her heart rate, dropped her SATs. And um, I knew she'd had, she had very little air entry on the left side when I did that, examined her on a primary survey. Although, interestingly, I couldn't really feel any rib fractures. So I decided to do a thoracostomy on the left side there and then did my landmarks fine. Um, went on, sort of carried on. Um, and I could feel some liquid as I sort of went in to sweep to fill if the lung was up. And instead of blood pouring out, there was what looked clearly like stomach contents. And I'll oh. never, ever forget that. For a, for a minute, I was panicking quite a lot as to air And um, I very quickly got the HEMS paramedic to come and check that I had, in fact, done the thoracostomy in the correct place. And he told me afterwards the look on my face was a picture and that he clearly, I was clearly worried about what I'd done. So, yeah, she, uh, we went on to RSI her. Um, unfortunately, she went on to arrest as we RSI'd her. We gave her some blood and um, sort of she wasn't a candidate for a thoracotomy. So we sort of intubated her bilateral thoracotomies. We gave some blood and we were, I sort of rung the consultant because it was a very difficult one. It was sort of, we felt like we'd done everything, but it was really, really hard because sort of, yeah, probably half an hour earlier, it probably less, she'd been talking to me and sort of knew where she was and everything. So it's quite difficult to sort of decide to stop. Talked it through with the consultant who was very supportive and agreed that he felt that we'd done everything. And we were actually about to call it, but we suddenly noticed that she had, because she'd been in a PEA rhythm the whole time, but we noticed that suddenly she had a really regular, very fast PA at 140 and her end tide had come up from sort of 0.9 to 3.2. But we had no powerful pulses at all. And um, on that service, we actually, we carry an ultrasound, but only a linear probe, um, just a, um, vascular access. We don't actually have a curvilinear probe or an echo probe. So I didn't have anything to sort of assess if there was any cardiac rhythm. But I got the probe and I, um, I just put it on her carotids in the end. And there was, you could see a tiny, tiny carotid artery, like pumping away, pumping away, pumping away. And so we suddenly, having just told the entire team that were there that we were going to call it and everyone was in agreement, we suddenly sort of felt that we didn't really have much of an option but to um, run um, to the local MTC. So we packaged her and we actually got her to the MTC and... Um, got her into into recess and they managed to scan her um, and take her up to theatre but unfortunately um, she she did unfortunately pass away on the operating theatre but yeah I think that was it was just a really interesting one from the fact that it was my very first kind of talk and die and I think everyone will always tell you that they're the worst patients because yeah it's 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 easy sort of I say it's easy but it's easy if someone's there and 
they're unconscious or they're really really unwell and then they pass away but when you have had someone that's sort of essentially able to tell you what they've done today and kind of why they did what they've just done and then suddenly within quite a quick space of time they they do die it's quite hard but I think also sort of the the immense panic that I will never forget when I saw stomach contents coming out of the thought just put in someone's chest and um, yeah that's something I will never ever forget but I can tell you my thoracostomy was in the right place unfortunately I'm sure it a, big, was. Big, a big um laceration to her stomach and a diaphragmatic rupture but yeah that will always stay with me I'm sure it will but that's that's a sad story but at the same time it is very interesting and you pretty much summed up all the interesting things you do as well it was a good roundup of, of all the previous things that we said about how reliable you your history taking your examination or the findings that you actually thought that was wrong with the patient because you were sure that your thoracostomy was in the right place and there was only one explanation for what happened which was a diaphragmatic rupture or something or stomach contact coming out points out towards again the fact that your examination and your finding invest, um, was correct initially and the investigation proved that proved it didn't it yeah yeah, yeah. I think again yeah it was like I, I sort of I assumed she had probably I assumed she had a hemothorax um on my primary survey but it just I knew from listening to the chest that there was very little air entry and it didn't quite it didn't fit with a sort of attention pneumothorax or anything like that so again it's just working out what you think's wrong so that the investigator all the the procedure that you do is the right procedure to treat the problem that is really underlying them I mean it doesn't it probably would have been a thoracostomy whether I thought it was a tension pneumothorax or a hemothorax but obviously a kind of needle decompression might relieve a tension pneumothorax whereas it's probably not going to relieve a significant hemothorax so again yeah just sort of trying to get into your head what you think is wrong with the patient so that when something does deteriorate you know what your next step is going to be correct so um, being a hems doctor as as rewarding as it is and as um exciting as it is it's, it's very challenging and it must be quite a stressful doing all those sort of procedures that we spoke about how do you how do you cope with all the stress and the challenges that you face on a day to day basis? Yeah, like, yeah. So like some days are really hard, um, and some jobs are harder than others. Some days are harder than others, um, but it's really important that those difficult jobs that you find personally, but also as a team, ways of kind of coping and dealing with those jobs. Because otherwise, if you're not careful, all those things are going to eventually build up. I think and can probably have some quite dire consequences if you're not careful. I think team support is huge. So you're always with a paramedic. And I think that interaction between you and the paramedic is really, really important. And also the other people there at the job. So we always, if possible, try and debrief with the ambulance service. And if there's police and fire, to debrief the job as well. Because you have to remember that they are all affected by it as well, even if even if you're finding it tough, they're probably actually finding it a lot tougher. So debriefing, discussing, giving people the opportunity to ask questions about things that they don't understand is always really important. And then sort of once you and the paramedic are back in the car, you have your own discussions, check it that each other's okay. And sort of, but ultimately you have to move on and get ready for the next job. And then there's kind of the wider team. So within the service, there's always a consultant or someone a manager that's on call 
Um, and I think it's really important that they're always available and that you know that they're available to talk to at the time or later and formal debriefing of jobs with a big group. So often you have a consultant and then other members of the service, so other doctors, other paramedics, kind of formal debriefs going through that to discuss the case. And then outside of that side, it's it's kind of just having, I think having friends and family support and sort of being able to maybe go to the pub after work and have a drink. I know that not everyone's a drinker, but sort of there's there's definitely the kind of social chatting and support is a is a really massive thing and then there's always it's always really important to know that there's the the formal sort of psychological support out there I think every service has access either locally or sort of outside of their service to some form of psychological support I know that the service that I'm working for currently has they have trim practitioners which come from sort of aviation so they will always be available to chat through to support and and even if it's not the work you've got to remember that we all have quite stressful lives outside of work as well and sometimes they can impact on our work and how sort of certain jobs affect us but I think the main thing is to make sure you talk through make sure you kind of raise your concerns um, raise any stresses you have and otherwise if you don't do that it's just going to build up and eventually probably not work out very well yeah that's true i think talking and talking and talking it will solve many problems in the world <laughs> yeah. and I, think it's, I think it's really important to i it's sort of i know this term is being used a lot at the moment but it's really important to remember that it's okay to not be okay and different people will get affected in different ways by different jobs and sometimes it's often the smaller sort of slightly less inconsequential jobs that will sneak up on you and for whatever reason be it a personal connection or it reminds you of your family or something it's often those jobs that can affect you more than kind of the big thoracotomy because you sort of you've got your adrenaline running and things in those jobs and you sort of that's kind of the thing you expect but it's often if you're not careful the slightly yeah the, the kind of less intense jobs that will catch you out for some reason but it's it's really important to know that it's okay to be bothered by things that's absolutely correct. How about if I take this question a bit further and ask about how does it feel being a female in a very manly world? How does it affect you and the challenges that you face? No, I think there's no getting away from it that pre-hospital care is still predominantly male dominated. I think it's getting a lot better and there's a lot more women coming into it. Yes. Um, but there's probably I think I've in in more recent years I've noticed it less and I certainly don't feel that it impacts on my ability to do the job I'll be honest the bags in any service that you work in are incredibly incredibly heavy and there is obviously a slightly physical element to it yes. but often if you're with a with a sort of burly paramedic they'll help and they're often quite nice and supportive but also Sort of I've, I've had I sort of have one crewmate that I work with regularly who's she's even smaller than I am <laughs> and uh, we the I have to say the pilots are incredibly helpful with those jobs and will often well they'll off, offer to carry some stuff down for us and I think that's where the real team it's beyond just you and the paramedic like the the pilots in this role do get involved they do help so um but I think you don't I think we've definitely gone away from 
hems as being this kind of alpha male world where you have to shout and sort of exert your presence in a job. I think you can do an equally good an equally good job in this role by just being sort of direct and and just sort of having good CRM and yeah. I don't yeah you don't you don't need to shout you don't need to be a big burly man to do this job anymore and I think that's really I think it's really important for any sort of females out there I mean I'm five and a half foot and weigh less than 60 kilos I'm certainly like I don't have a big presence on scene but I still like to think that I managed to get yeah I managed to do a good job and sort of get people you, you do knowing you and, and I'm fully aware that you do all the things that we've spoken about have been great loads of good you've given us a good insight about how it feels being a hems doctor and i think that's all great thank you very much uh, for everything sophie is there any final words anything that you want to add any anything that you want to mention for people of northwest um i guess just if yeah if you want to if you want a career in pre-hospital um medicine then I think just go for it we have to work pretty hard to get there but I can assure you once you get there it is really worthwhile it's a really rewarding job and the experience you'll get will stay with you for the rest of your career and uh, and we need more girls so come on girls get out there and do it absolutely yeah definitely <laughs> that's been lovely thank you very much Sophie thank you no thanks for it I really enjoyed it what happened to you oh sorry I didn't hear that <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha.